Amen. Thank you, Tony. Uh, yeah, good morning. If y'all didn't hear earlier, my name is Austin Snively. I am on staff here at Redeemer, and we are just continuing our series in the Psalms uh, this summer as we think about what it is to live a Godward life. And really what that means is we just want to meditate on the question, how do we realign our hearts, our lives, uh, to the reality of who God is and what he's doing? Because it is easy for us to get caught up in the circumstances of life and forget the ultimate reality of who God is, what he's been doing, what he continues to do, that he is good, that he is great, and he is working all things to his glory and our good. And so we, as we go through the Psalms, we can't help but be struck that that's not how, or that is how David approaches life, that is how the psalmists approach life, and we, we can learn something from that. And so this morning, we come to Psalm 32, and it's known as the Psalm of Repentance, and I know uh, as Presbyterians, we can get a bad rap for thinking about our sin too much, uh, and we can kind of have this reputation of, of navel-gazing and being negative, but repentance, it's, it's not just a hyper-focus on sin. It is not a negative thing. What it is is turning away from our sin, acknowledging it, turning away from it, and turning towards the Lord, and there's a beauty to it. It's confessing what is true of us and what is true of him, that we are sinners in need of a good and great Savior, and he is that Savior who delights in saving us. I was talking to uh, my friend before the service, and he said, yeah, it's easy. Every week you just get to get up there and say, you sucked so much that Jesus had to die for you, but he loves you so much that he wanted to. And that is pretty much it, and that's what we get to look at this morning, because the great hope of Christianity is that we find forgiveness and favor from the Lord and repentance uh, given to us by the Holy Spirit. And as, as, we, as I thought about that this week, as I, as I was thinking about Christianity in general, there really is this dichotomy that it's open to everybody, but it's also exclusive, that it's open to anyone who repents, but it's exclusive because you have to repent. It's only people who do turn towards the Lord, right? Turn towards Christ. And that's not a foreign concept to us as we think back in our own nation's history. Tony just mentioned uh, Juneteenth and being freed from slavery. As thinking back to that time at the end of the Civil War, President Lincoln was faced with a question, what would he do with all of these states and all of these people who had been in open rebellion against the country and he had been fighting for a country that was open for all, that was united, and so what he did, uh, rather than being uh, excessively punitive towards them, is he offered uh, admittance back into the union on one condition, and that was repentance. The only condition for returning was admitting that you had gotten it totally wrong. And Christianity works the same way. Entrance into the kingdom of God is the same way. The only way to enter the kingdom is by admitting before you came to Jesus, you got it all wrong. And that's what we see David doing here. You got it all, he got it all wrong before he came to the Lord as he tried to hide and cover his sin. And that's what I think we'll see in the text this morning. So it'll be on the screen behind me or in your worship folders if you don't have your Bible. But let's read Psalm 32 together this morning. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through, through my groaning all the day long. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of the summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. 
Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer a prayer to you at a time where you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters, they shall not reach him. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding that must be curbed with bit and bridle or it will not stay near you. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. Uh, This is the word of the Lord. Say it with me. The grass withers. And the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Uh, David, he opens this psalm with a pretty extraordinary claim, if you didn't notice, that the blessed is one whose transgression is forgiven and whose sin is covered. It's not somebody who doesn't sin. It's not somebody who has it all together and seems like they are the good people. The blessed is someone against whom the Lord doesn't count their iniquity. And at the most fundamental level, that means that the person who's blessed is the person who's gotten something wrong. That they're a sinner. A sinner in need of a savior. And so we can see, right, forgiveness, it necessitates wrongdoing. The only way you are forgiven is if you come to somebody you have sinned against. And in this case, really in any case, it is namely God himself. Blessedness is... It could also be translated as joy or happiness here, and it really only comes from the forgiveness and the covering of the Lord. And that's what we see as David works through that psalm. And we read it in the call to worship, right? I cry out to the Lord. I hope in the Lord, for with him there is steadfast love and plentiful redemption. For David, his only hope is the steadfast love and plentiful redemption that comes from God himself, and that is where he finds joy and blessedness and rest As we work through the text, we'll see David begins with that claim that forgiveness is where blessing is found, and then he explains why he believes that and why that has been revealed as true to him. And he works from fear of confession to forgiveness he finds in confession and then the favor of the Lord that he discovers as well. And so that's the outline we'll follow this morning. Fear, forgiveness, and favor. It should be in your worship folder there with you. Uh, So let's start just being fearful, right? We live kind of fearful of being found out of someone discovering just how bad we really are, right? David, he, he first tries to show us that repentance and forgiveness are the way to joy and blessedness by showing us the opposite. He relives what it was like to live in unconfessed sin in the psalm. He tries to show what it's like to live in our own strength to cover our guilt. And I think we can all relate to that, right? Can you think of a time where you did something and you got away with it and you were just waiting for somebody to know, somebody to find out, somebody to call you on it. Uh, one, the one that's even better is when you haven't actually done something and then you're still worried somebody's going to call you out on something. Right? I mean, students think, I'm, if your parents just shout your name across the house, what, what happens is you just start thinking, what did I do? What did they find out about me? especially if they use your middle name, then you, know, then you know you really did do something and you start reliving every bad thing you've done. Or parents, what if it's an unexpected call with your boss or an unexpected call from your child's principal and you just have that gut sinking feeling and you just, you're, you're reliving everything it could be because we live guilty. We live knowing that we've offended somebody and it's exhausting trying to cover it up. 
I mean, the, there are stories of this all over our culture. There's a show uh, called Bloodline uh, on Netflix. It centers around a family that looks like they have everything right, that they are the good people uh, in the community. But behind the scenes, this family is dysfunctional and it's broken. Drug and alcohol abuse run rampant. One brother kills another. Children hate their parents, but it's all hidden and covered up. And all of these big sins, as the show goes on, it reveals that all of those big sins can be traced back to one particular hidden sin that they've lived trying to cover up. And their sin just kept growing and growing as they tried to hide their sin. But more than TV shows, it's even in our children's book. I mean, how many children's books are there about a kid who lies and has to tell their parents? Uh, one example uh, called Max and the Big Fat Lie tells the story of a boy who lies to his parents and the lie continues growing as he has to keep lying to cover up the original lie. And the, the imagery that I loved in it is as the lie keeps growing, it literally crushes his bicycle as he tries to go home. It is so heavy, he can feel the burden, right? He can't take the weight of the guilt and shame anymore, so he apologizes to his parents, and then they forgive him. But why did he lie before? Because he knew he'd offended his parents, he was guilty, and he was scared of the consequence. But when he confesses, Max becomes free. And I mention those stories because they show the ways that we try to handle guilt and shame of our unconfessed sin. And they're a lot like Psalm 32. So if we look back at verse 3 and 4, which I've been referencing a little bit already, that is how David describes living in unconfessed sin. I mean, if we just read it, if we just go through it, he says, For when I was silent, my bones wasted away. There's, he's groaning all the day long. The Lord's hand is heavy upon him. His strength is dried up as the heat of the summer. And I, I, I love that last line because we live in Florida. We know what it's like to have your heat or your strength dried up by the heat of the summer, right? I was in North Carolina last week, and the day we got up to come home, it was 46 degrees. I put on a jacket. It was nice and refreshing. It was unexpected, but I loved it. And then I got home, and I still had the jacket on, and I got out, and it was 97 degrees, and the heat was oppressive. I immediately started to sweat and think, I, need, I have to get this jacket off. This is just unbearable. And then I walked up to my porch, and the ferns that are on our front porch were just withered and dead after just a week of being gone because the heat of the summer had dried up their strength. It had taken all life and vitality out of them. Right, And that's what David is describing. All the vitality is being drained out of him. His, his strength is failing. His bones are wasting away. It's having a physical effect on him. And we know that what that feels like too, right? There's the chest pain that comes along with anxiety, the feeling you get in your stomach. There's even stress-induced sicknesses that we suffer from. Or you can get that sweaty, shaky feeling when you lie and you know that you've just been dishonest with somebody. And here's what David is saying, that sin is a big deal. There's a standard of holiness that we have failed to live up to in so many ways, and there's a cost to that. We live knowing that we owe God a debt, that we have wronged him, and we hide. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. That's why that was the, the reading of the law this morning in the worship folder. Right? When Adam and Eve sin, what happens? They run into the bushes, and they jump in there, and they try to hide from God, and they put some leaves together to try and cover themselves. And they do that because they've become aware of their guilt. They feel shame. That's a result of the fall. That's a result of sin. But we do this too. But our, our fig leaves, our coverings, they're, they're not actual leaves. They're records that we try to build up uh, to prove that we are worth saving or to prove that we're good enough 
to be loved. I mean, if you think about it this way, you, you have two options when you, when you offend somebody. So if I hit your car today in the parking lot after church, I have two options. I can either come up with the money to pay the debt myself, or I can ask your forgiveness because I probably can't afford to fix any of your cars if I hit them in the parking lot today. But that's what forgiveness is, right? It's taking on the debt, the cost of the debt that somebody else owes you. Forgiveness isn't that nobody pays, it's that you pay for somebody else's sin. So the question is not, will I pay, but who will pay? And in our hearts, with our sin, we believe he's not good enough to forgive us, not really. So we try to cover ourselves and pay our own debt in our own strength. We keep silent about our sins and our failings to keep up the appearances we want others to see, to make them think better of us than we really are. And under the pressure of curating that image to gain the stamp of approval from others, we just wilt. I mean, you can think about a million ways that we do this, right? Social media, you just post all the good things about your life so people think that you've got it all together. Uh, it can be how much money you give away to good causes, aligning yourself with being uh, a good person and serving your community. Uh, it can be aligning yourself to a certain cause that is culturally uh, popular so that you hear the approval from man. You blame shift any sin that you commit so that you don't have to own it. Oh, it wasn't, it wasn't me, it was the woman you gave me. Or even the best one is we just excuse it away or justify it because there's worse sinners out there than me. But in the end, that hiding, that covering, the excusing of our sin, it leaves us waiting, just waiting for the moment that somebody really sees through the, the fake facade that we have in front of us, and we're just waiting to hear that gavel, guilty. And it just feels hopeless. It leaves us wondering what our hope could be. And Psalm 32 is so clear. The only hope we have is from, in the forgiveness of the one that we've offended, God himself. And that's what we see in verse 5. If we look at it again, David says, I acknowledged my sin. I did not cover it. I confess it, and you forgave me. What we see David do is repent. He turns away from his sin. He no longer covers, excuses, blame shifts. He's honest. There's no deceit in his spirit is what it says. Which, by the way, that's, that's a defining characteristic of the people of God in the Psalms and the prophets, and Jesus even echoes it with his disciples. That there's this openness, this honestness with yourself and with God of who you are and who he is. And the Lord forgives him. And this is the place we really see the psalm shift. It goes from uh, oppression and weightiness to freedom and joy. David, his spirit and his heart are lifted. It says he rejoices. And we don't know what, what sin David committed here, or at least I don't, uh, but it, David does re reveal something important about sin. First and foremost, every sin you commit is against God himself. That feeling of always waiting on somebody to find out, of somebody accusing you of your guiltiness, just reliving the worst things you've ever done in your mind over and over, those are all rooted in the original sin we are born with. We live with an inherent understanding that there is a God who is holy and good, and we have sinned against him. That's what verse 4 says, right? David says, your hand was heavy upon me, meaning David knew who he needed to repent to. 
The presence of a good and powerful God against whom David had sinned was a heavy thing to him. And God, he's faithful to prick our hearts, to prick our conscience and remind us that we need to repent, to drive us to repentance, to convict us. That's what Holy Spirit does for his people. And and just to be clear, repentance and faith, they they may be conditions to enter the kingdom of God, right? But they are conditions that he is faithful to give you. It is not something you have to come up with on your own, right? I I was thinking about it, and when um, my brother went to Clemson, they played in the national title game against Alabama, and it was in Tampa, and we really wanted to go. There's no way we could afford to buy the tickets, and somebody gave them to us, right? The, The condition for going into that game was a ticket. I could not go in that game unless I had a ticket, but I did not have to pay for my ticket. And that's what Holy Spirit is faithful to do to us. When it says the Lord's hand was heavy upon me, that is the Lord giving you the condition you need to go to him in repentance and faith. So David confesses, and that's the word we see in verse 5. And in the Hebrew, that word can really mean two things, confess or praise. And according to Dr. Fatato, who was a Hebrew professor at seminary, he said it really means to confess in praise. That's the word here, to confess what is true about us and what is true about God. We confess that we are sinful, and we confess and praise that he is great and good enough to save us. Because what is confession? It's really just declaring something that is true, and what is most true of us is that we are great sinners, but what is most true of him is that he is an even greater Savior. And that's why we can confess both our righteousness and our sinfulness as we live in God's forgiveness. See, confession and repentance, they're not bad or negative things. They're beautiful things. Look at the joy David finds at the end of the psalm in verse 10 and 11. Shout for joy. Right? Rejoice in him. The goal of repentance, it's not punishment or penance or cleaning yourself up to make God love you more. No, that is, that's what penance is. That is punishing yourself to pay for your sins, and it's not what God is after. He doesn't want or need you to clean yourself up before you come to him because he is after you and desires to be in right relationship with you, and so he cleans you up for him. He made you to be in right relationship with him for there to be this unity and this intimacy, this oneness with him. And when you punish yourself for your sins, when you feel that you have to pay for them yourself, what you're saying is that the Lord is not good enough to cover them for you. You feel the debt you owe to God. You know deep down there is a debt that is owed in blood. That is what we see in Genesis 3 and in Romans 5. The wages of sin are death, and that is heavy. And that's a good thing. It should be heavy. But... Where we mess up is we don't believe that the blood of Jesus is powerful enough to cover the blood debt of our sins, and we make light of the cross, and we make light of his sacrifice. Anytime you fail to believe in God's forgiveness of you, it is because your bloodthirstiness over your own sin has not been satisfied by the blood of Christ. You have not drank deeply enough from the cup he offers in communion. Uh, Bonhoeffer, as he read this psalm, he said this, the psalms presuppose complete assurance of the forgiveness of sins. There is such a thing as the confident leaving behind of sins for the sake of Jesus. See, repentance, it's not hyper-focused on our sin. It really is just acknowledging it, hating it, and turning away from it into the beauty of Jesus. 
because the goal is connection and intimacy with him, beholding him. That is what we're made for. But that intimacy, it requires an authenticity at risk of using a buzzword that I really don't like that much. Uh, but intimacy, transparency, right? Honesty. And we see this in marriage. The two become one flesh. There's an intimacy there. It's the place where we're meant to be fully known and fully loved as a reflection of God's love for us. And that relationship, it stops working if there's hiding and covering and dishonesty. Right? The unity depends on transparency. And oneness with God is the same way. It requires transparency and repentance. Because we can't fully meet him, right, unless we're willing to give our entire self over to him because he is after all of you. He's not after 10% of your money. He's not after right behavior. He is after you. Think back to Adam and Eve. They could not be covered in the garments God made for them. If we just skip a few verses past where the reading of the law stopped, God kills something to make a covering for Adam and Eve that he provides them. They could not be covered by those garments until they uncovered themselves of their fig leaves. So the question is, what are you covering? What are you trying to hide from God and others? Where do you need to uncover yourself before him in repentance? Because David is communicating this. When you cover yourself, when you try to make your own garments of righteousness, God is really faithful to uncover you. He knows your sin. You cannot hide. Do you, do you think that he did not know where Adam and Eve were when he said, where are you? Like, he created everything, right? He knew right where they were, and he knows you too. He knows every sin you've ever committed and will commit. You can't hide from him. And if you try to cover it up, he will expose you and your sin, and you will face him in condemnation. And that is a promise that is kind of scary in the Bible. It should make you shake just a little bit. It should be a weighty thing. But if you uncover yourself before him, if you give up your fig leaf garments, your feeble attempts to hide and cover yourself, then he is faithful to cover you in the robes of a king. When you're transparent with him, you find his favor because you confess what is true of him, that he is good enough and strong enough to save you, that he delights in doing that. Because repentance, it's not just admitting wrong action, it's wrong heart, wrong love, wrong belief. It's turning to God and saying, I am totally hopeless without you. But in you, I know I am forgiven, I am freed, and I am saved. And so that, if that's forgiveness, then we also find his favor. We discover his favor. right? If you look back at verses 6 and 7, David starts to describe that. Uh, everyone who is godly offers a prayer, he says. Where verses 3 and 4 offer striving to cover your sin, David says in verse 6 that it's prayer is the only place you can actually be covered. It is the place where you can really find forgiveness from the Lord. See, he loves meeting us in our need, and we see that in verses uh, 6 and 7. Surely in the rush of great waters... It won't reach us. That's symbolism for danger, chaos, an enemy that's too big for us to overcome on ourselves. And they can't, the waters cannot reach us because he is the hiding place. He is the covering. He's preserving us and surrounding us with shouts of deliverance. He covers those who run to him. And if we think about that word preserve, what it is, it's, is it's to keep from going bad, right? And then it's also to keep from death. Those are kind of the two uh, meanings of that word. And that's what he does. By the power of his spirit, we are kept from going bad into sin. And we are kept from death, the consequence of our sin. 
and shouts of deliverance. That's imagery from, uh, from a battle. The enemy that was too powerful for me to overcome on my own is defeated by somebody who's stronger than myself on my behalf. See, our, our fig leaf coverings, our feeble attempts to save ourselves cannot protect you from a flash flood. The rush of great waters will wipe them away. The Lord is the only Savior I can trust to be strong enough to save me. And maybe you're saying to yourself, That's all, that all sounds great, that's good, but how do I know? How do I know he's for me? Can I really believe that he's good enough and great enough to save me? And David has an answer for that too in verses 10 and 11. Because what surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord, not just the power of the Lord, but his steadfast love. David is describing the Lord's favor when he looks upon us, it is with love, right? He's not saving you from obligation or anything that you've done. He saves you because of his steadfast love for you. He covers your sin because he delights in you. And that's the story of the Bible. Think about everyone he's been faithful to cover. David is reminding himself of all of these stories of God's faithfulness and knows that he is good enough and he is great enough to save, right? Adam and Eve, God covers them with the garment. Noah, he covers with an ark. Moses, he covers in a rock. Ruth, he covers by Boaz's coat. And David is working through these things, reminding himself of God's goodness. And he wrote this before Christ. How much more can we be sure of God's forgiveness and favor this side of the cross? Just look to the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, the one who covers us. It says they cast lots for his clothes. Why? Because some of the very people that kill him have their sin covered by the robes of Jesus. He gave himself up. He gave his place in heaven up. He gave his very life for all who call upon his name. What else could he be holding back from you? So how do you know? You know because of Jesus. And we said it earlier, forgiveness is not just overlooking. Someone still has to pay. And we can see in Jesus, God, the offended party, took the blood debt of sin owed by all of his people and paid it himself. Sin is a big deal. It is such a big deal that someone had to die for it. It is not something that God overlooked. My sin, your sin, Jesus looked them head on and said, I will pay for it. I will pay for all of it with my life. And so we know in him all of God's promises are yes and amen. In him we are clothed in the righteousness of the one who lived the life I should have lived and died the death I should have died. And we can say, just like David in verse 11, that we are both sinner and saint. We can confess that we are the righteous because the righteous died for us. And that frees us to be not like the horse or the mule in verses 9 that have to draw near because they're forced to, right? A bit and a bridle, they're meant to rein something in. The horse can't know the heart of its master. It has to be forced into obedience and nearness. But we, we know the heart of our Lord because he showed it to us in the life of Jesus. And it is steadfast love and it is favor and it is forgiveness. And so as I look to Jesus upon the cross, as we look to Jesus upon the cross, we can sing with David, blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and who, in whose spirit there is no deceit because it was counted against Jesus for us. Because we confess our sin to him and he takes them to the grave to kill the great oppressor of sin and death that we could never hope to conquer on our own. We are freed by the forgiveness that he gives. 
No longer are we oppressed and crushed under the weight of our heavy burdens. Instead, we can hear the voice of King Jesus say, Come to me, weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And so if you don't hear anything else this morning, just hear this, that the blessed is not the one who has it all together, but the one against whose transgression is not counted, whose sin is forgiven, who is covered by the Lord. The one who confesses and prays both what is true of himself and what is true of a God, that I am a sinner in desperate need of a Savior, and the Lord is that gracious and great Savior who saves you because he loves you. And that is where we find his forgiveness that brings joy and freedom and blessedness. And we find another just dichotomy of Christianity that I am more sinful than I could ever imagine, but more loved than I ever dared hope. I know we say that around here all the time, but I don't think we can get enough of it. And so that lets us sing uh, the, with this great hymn, uh, these two truths. I confess both my worth and my unworthiness, my value fixed, my ransom paid at the cross. And so I rejoice in my Redeemer, my greatest treasure, the wellspring of my soul. I will trust in him and no other, because my soul is satisfied in him alone. Uh, let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you. We thank you that in you we find steadfast love uh, and plentiful redemption, as we read in our call to worship. And though the wages of our sin are death, you have taken the debt that we owed and paid it yourself. We have nowhere else to go. We have nowhere else to turn to. And so, Father, we just pray that that reality would sink into our hearts, that you have nailed it to the cross, putting to shame the powers of this world. And we can say that we truly are declared righteous, even in our sinfulness. Blessedness is not figuring it all out on our own. It's going to you and saying, Dad, I need you. Uh, and knowing that you are faithful to cover us in any sin, the blood of Jesus on the cross is greater than any sin we could ever commit so long as we turn to you in repentance. And Holy Spirit, we thank you that you're faithful to give us the faith and the repentance and the conditions of admittance to the kingdom that we need because we are hopeless to find it without you. And so, Father, we pray. Let that truth sink into our hearts this morning as we read the Psalms and through the rest of the summer as we continue to read these Psalms that we would have a Godward life oriented around repentance and forgiveness and favor that you give. Uh, we love you and we praise you in your son's name. Amen. So the great thing about being a Christian is that as we go out this week, uh, you don't hear this blessing because of anything that you've done, but instead because the blood of Jesus cries out for you. So the Father looks on you with favor. Uh, so hear this benediction this morning. Uh, may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord give, turn his face towards you and give you his peace both now and forevermore. Amen. Go in his peace.